today. I'm Alan Collar, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and Finance Guy on the ABC News. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, so uh, did you go into the lockup on the budget lockup? I, I didn't, Alan. No, I left that to the professionals. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go? I didn't go into the lockup either. You didn't, go, you didn't get locked up either. No, probably, possibly for the. I can't remember exactly, but it was possibly the first time in forty years that I haven't been in the lockup. Wow! And was that a deliberate choice or? Yeah, they asked me, "Do you want to go in the lockup?" And I said, "Nah." <laughs> well, <laughs> well, because uh, oh, who can be? I mean, look, I, I mean, I, do, I only write for the New Daily now. Yep. And uh, they didn't need anything at seven thirty. Right. Right. Which is when the lockup finishes. Yep. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just start work at 7.30. Yeah. So I did. And as it turns out, most of it had been pre-announced anyway. Precisely. Um, yeah, so anyway, I kind of worked through it. And I wrote a column for New Daily about how, um, which is what struck me about the budget, actually, as I read it and thought about it, that, that basically the whole thing is framed by the fact that Treasury got the pandemic wrong. Mm. It means... It, yeah. I mean, all the, all the, um, uh, well, basically everything in the budget was a comparison with the last couple of years. You know, the improvement in the in the um, in the economy, yes, the yep. improvement in the budget deficit, and so on. Yep. But all that's based on the uh, fact that uh, in the October 2020 budget, uh, they got the whole thing completely wrong. Their their forecasts for the economy were wrong. Yes. Their forecasts for the budget deficit were wrong. Um, and so that's made this budget look great, yeah. You know, in terms of the improvement in the economy and so on. Uh, but really, if you think about it, it's, all it means is they got it wrong. Yes, it wasn't an easy time to be forecasting. To be fair, though. No, no, I said that. <laughs> I'm not saying that you know that, that anybody got it right. You're not blaming anyone. No, yeah. no. It's just, it, but the, but that's just the truth of it. Yeah. And and the, and the other thing about getting it wrong or, or getting the pandemic wrong is that they overcompensated. Mm, so, yes. you know, they, they, the, the fiscal stimulus uh, um, associated with the pandemic was $350 billion. Yep. And there's now $250 billion sitting in household bank accounts. Yes. I mean... <laughs> which, we're going to, which we're going to be dealing with for years. So most of the money that was used to support the economy in the pandemic was not spent. Yeah. It's still sitting there. Yeah. And potentially laying a trap for the RBA. Well, that's uh, certainly the, it's certainly <laughs> going to boost the economy now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and is the is the cause of unemployment going to three point seven five percent as the as the budget now forecasts? Yeah, yeah. Do you were you struck also by its sort of the short time frame? I know it's an election budget, so we always sort of get that in election budget, but. The fuel excise to me is is a fascinating example yes. of, of of you know I think Jim Chalmers has called it a trap for the next government and that's exactly what it is. It's yeah, you be wrote so about hard that to take away. You wrote about that this morning. So explain to us what your point. Well, I guess was. my point is that you know we're going through this energy shock around the world. So the idea that yes, Jim Chalmers is exactly right that it's going to be difficult to take away in six months, but this energy shock's going to be going for six years, you know, and probably longer as the as the global energy map's redrawn. So I don't know what happens in six months with the excise, but you could be having this rolling fight over, as, as energy prices stay quite high, you could be having this rolling fight about what do we do about the fuel excise? Well, they're going to have to, uh, at some point, I'm not saying in six months, at some point they're going to have to restructure road user charges 
um, you know, yeah. and take it out of fuel excise because because at some point there won't be enough cars using fuel. Yes, well, there's all sorts of ramifications, isn't there? Like, is this an opportunity to ex- accelerate the shift to EVs? You would have thought yes, but there's been no sign of that. Yeah. And, and so it just strikes me as one of these things where the short-sightedness of political cycles means that you can't tackle this in a thoughtful way. You tackle well, well, it in a six-month way. But let's, it's not just political cycles. It's the short-sightedness of the government. Come yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 you know, should the government change this election, Labor's going to have exactly the same problem. Like, what do you do in six months' time? H- how do you take this sugar away from the, the, the yeah, citizens? Yeah, but, but it should never have been... I mean, the, the petrol excise should Shouldn't not have been, have been cut. No. It was a really bad idea. Yeah, man, and and everyone's going. I guess what I'm saying is, it's not going to be, it's not just going to be a six month issue. It's going to be hard to get out of this in six years. It's going to be with us for a long time. Is it? And so, was that the only thing you got out of the budget? <laughs> Look, that was the main thing. I mean, I, I didn't see any great sort of reform or change. No, there's no reform in it. Um, no, no, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, in some ways, I thought. I mean, the question, the question of, to your point about. Labor. The question of how does this budget add to inflationary pressures? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Um, so it's going to make interest rates go up faster than they would otherwise. Yeah, have gone it's going up. to make the RBA's job harder. Would, would I mean, it is. The, it's true that yesterday, uh, as far as I could tell, the the futures market wound back the pricing of ca- the cash rate a little bit by like ten basis points or something because of the cut to inflation that's inherent in the fuel excise yes. cut. Yep. Yep. But that's a that's a short-term thing. I mean, yeah. broadly speaking, inflation's going to be higher yeah. um, as a result of the spending and, you know, interest rates are going to be higher than they would otherwise have been. Yeah, yep. I think that's right. I mean, that's the main takeaway out of all this. It's um, the, the path of interest rates remains... The, the sort of great thing to watch, I think. Yeah, that's right. And and just to just to record what that looks like, uh, everyone seems to all the economists seem to be um, uh, unanimous now that interest rates are going to start going up in June. Yep. After the election, and that um, the and, but there's a really interesting gap now between what the economists say and what the futures market says. Mm. The futures market says that interest rates will keep going up till they get to more than three percent. This is the cash rate. Yeah. Cash rate goes to above three percent. The economists are clustered around one point five percent as being the terminal rate. So there's a big that's a big gap yeah. between the futures market and the economists. And I think it all depends on what we see in wages. If we see wage growth really start to take off, the RBA is going to have little choice but to get more hawkish. Um, if we don't see RBA uh, wages take off, maybe the RBA can be a little bit more patient. But yeah. It'll be interesting to see after the election whether Phil Lowe turns more hawkish. Well, the economists I've spoken to, they say, oh, no, they can't. there's no way that the um, uh, the cash rate can go to 3% because everyone's got too much debt yeah. Yeah. and it'll send too many people uh, to the wall. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, because the, the mortgage rate will be 5.5% or something and it isn't so much the average mortgage size, which is currently across Australia $635,000. In Sydney, it's $830,000 average mortgage. Yeah. And the thing is that there's there's possibly 10% of the people who have got a very big mortgage uh, that's a bit more than they can possibly afford. At least it's more than they can afford at 5% interest rate. So the, the problem is not so much the average, it's the marginal. Mm. It's it's the ones at the margin. Yeah. Yep. And how many people would be sent to the wall 
by a five percent mortgage rate. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's fascinating. I mean, the, there's a, a Macquarie guru called Victor Schwetz who yes. has been talking we know, about we this. We know Victor well. Who has been talking about this challenge? You know, how do central banks divide their attention between? asset prices and, you know, the sort of real economy, things that they like to look at, like labour and mm. uh, productivity and all that sort of thing. And and he's also of the view that asset prices are going to move, are going to have a, play a lot bigger role this time around. Yeah, right. Because we've got so much more debt. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, uh, Telstra... New CEO. I see you, uh, yeah. both you and Tony Boyd and Sean yeah, wrote well, about it this morning. We, we thought is, it was uh, a big thing. So you um, both had a go at it. And I don't think you disagreed, did you? <laughs> no, no. And, and uh, my focus was more on uh, Andy Penn, the the, uh, the departing uh, CEO, and his was more on Vicky Brady. But I think where we sort of coalesced is uh, where Penn, when Penn took over from David Thody, David Thody had done a lot of work to fix up Telstra's relationship with the government, but he hadn't started on the hard work of in fact, in cutting fact, costs. You, you wrote that um, the Telstra looked like it was in better shape than it actually well, I was. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the share price was you know up around six bucks when Penn took over, but really there was this massive hit from the NBN coming, and the thing was bloated, you know, in, in a way that's just you know, just. Un- completely unsustainable. So, so Thody did a crap job. Let's, is that what you're saying? Well, no, I'm not <laughs> saying that because Thody had to fix up the relationship that Sol Trujillo had fractured with the government. So a lot of what Thody spent time doing was fixing that relationship, and he did a good job of that. Why did that have to be fixed up? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, uh, well, really? they had to they had to get a, a better NBN. The government deal. changes every couple of years. <laughs> you know, Christ, we've had so many prime ministers in the last last ten years. Who cares? Well, Telstra is very sensitive about their relationship with the government, which is why they've done this DigiCell deal, which will mean they're uh, in clover with the government for years that uh, to buy this um, Pacific. Uh, mobile network, cable network. So, yeah. Um, look, I think I think Penn's done a pretty good job of the sort of shock therapy that Telstra needed to get rid of the bloated sort of bureaucratic government nature of the joint. Um, and I reckon he's leaving at a time when he's made it quite. He, he's leaving a good platform for his successor, which is not something that every CEO does. Often CEOs leave and their successor finds all these sort of landmines in the uh, long grass. But, I mean, it's hard to tell. But at the moment it looks like... There may be some landmines. There may be some landmines, but it it looks like he's handing over the ship in pretty good condition. What do you think of the fact that it's uh, two chief financial officers in a row getting the top job? Yeah, well, Does that matter? No, I don't think so. I think that's pretty common. Bean counters running the place. Well... Don't we want engineers running Telstra? I think in in Brady's defence... Penn was an insurance executive and, and more of the bean counter. Uh, Brady has a long history in telcos. She worked at Optus. She was probably unlucky not to get the top job there. Um, so I think she's she's a she's a telco executive. Through yeah, and through. right. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So I think, uh, you know, you can be confident she knows that industry well. Um Okay, moving along. What, are, what else are we talk about? Star Casino, Star in the, uh, the Sydney Casino. Yeah. I mean, what the hell's going on there? Well, you know what's going on? Exactly the same thing that happened at Crown. I mean, almost they're a bunch play of crooks. Play. Almost they? play. On, they're not a bunch of crooks. We're not. We're, we're not no, saying we can't that. say that. We're not but, saying uh, that. We're not saying that. What? What we? 
What, what sort of gets me about this is all the things we're seeing at the Star Casino Inquiry are exactly the same things we saw at the Crown Casino Inquiry, right? They did this, they got into bed with Sun City, this junket operator who brings wealthy Asian punters to their casinos. Everybody knew that Sun City was backed by the triads up in Asia, and yet Crown and Star went, oh, okay, well, we can sort that out. And we'll give them a, a room inside our casino where they can operate a little casino of their own, completely unregulated. And how did they not think that was going to blow up in their face? It was always going to blow up in their face, right? But what gets me is that Star has sat there for two years watching Crown go through all these issues and made no changes. They haven't thought, ah, we've got exactly the same issues as this. Maybe we'll get on the front foot. They've gone, if we keep our head down, we can get, a, we can get through this. And now they find themselves in exactly the same position as Crown. It is craziness. It is just a huge governance failure. So the whole board needs to go, right? Well, I think, I mean, from what we see at Crown... That, so that's, the CEO's that's gone. The Matt, CEO's gone, Matt, Matt Beckier. Matt Beckier, he's um, gone. So they've all got to go. Out I, they go. I think over time, the entire board will turn over, yeah. And that's what regulators demand. They want to see change at the top. So... Yeah, but, but the fact is that Crown has not really lost its licence. No. And so... <laughs> <laughs> These things are too big to fail. But that's bullshit, surely. I, I, Come I, on. I agree. They've got to I'm just, not saying it's right or wrong. What, but, I mean, what, but why, does, why aren't the governments taking away their licence? I think the governments are thinking these places employ tens of thousands of people. Yes, but they're going to continue to employ it if somebody else gets the licence. But but the changeover in a licence isn't like, you know, you, you finish up on Friday, you take over on Monday. It, installing a new licence holder probably takes six, nine, 12 months. So who runs it in the interim? Do you leave it in the hands of the guys who you just found? I'm just it? postulating that the thing's not going to close down for six months while they, no, while no. they muck around with who gets the licence. No. Oh, I mean, is. even if Dan Andrews goes in there and stands at the tables at Crown... <laughs> and starts dealing da- blackjack. Starts dealing blackjack. Somebody's going to do it, right? Someone's going to do it, yeah. I, I, I agree. Keep going. But they have, they have taken the, option, the, the sort of path of least resistance. It, it's amazing that Crown's gone through three inquiries two of which were royal commissions been found unsuitable in every one of them and what's the damage to their business not that much they're about to be sold for nine billion dollars so maybe this is why star entertainment did not actually get on the front foot and change things because they could see oh well we won't lose our license it'll be fine yeah we'll just we'll all get sacked but what the hell that's true maybe that's the that's the thing but i think they could have gone and said well look they could have gone into this inquiry saying we are 18 months into a reformation project, but instead they're right at the start of it. Yeah. So uh, it's it's just it's bewildering to me how they've got themselves to this position. Um, uh, you guys called the Tesla share split an an Elon Musk mind what? trick. I called mind it. trick. You yes. did. You called I it a did. mind trick. I did. Yes. Um, well, a good one. Us, explain why. Well. Stock splits don't do anything to change the underlying fundamentals of the company, right? You're just saying, you, you know, you, you used to have one shares and for, now you've got 20. So basically, it's designed to say Tesla stock is Tesla stock is over $1,000. If you do a 20 for one stock split, and we don't know what they're going to do, but it's probably going to be something like that. It's now worth $55 a share. And so Joan and Joe Bloggs suddenly go, well, that looks more affordable than a thousand bucks. I'll have me some of that. And so it's a, it's a psychological shift. You know, it's just designed to make the stock look more affordable 
when nothing's changed. And that's fine, but that, that's what it is. Let's not, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing really beneficial about it to anyone else. It's other interesting than that the Tesla's done that, but the other big uh, price stocks like Amazon, um, Google, and so on, they haven't done it. No, they have. Google, oh, have they? Google and Amazon have announced the same thing in the last four weeks. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. I so it. we're we're and this is <laughs> this is Tesla's second stock split in two years. So it's a <laughs> it's just going back to the bag of tricks. I mean, there's nothing you know. You might say so what, but it's pretty incredible, you know. That it is a, I, I, I stand by it. It's a, it's a mind trick, and and Musk is good at using Twitter and prompting little things, making little things, uh, making little announcements that move the share price around. Yeah, fair so. enough. Um, just before we move on to questions, I just want to record uh, for posterity that I, I I think I possibly made a mistake last night on the news. Oh, um, referring to and talking about. And having graphs of uh, the yield curve inversion, which oh, what did you do? No, well, I, I noted that on Tuesday night, mm-hmm. about the time the budget was being brought down, yeah, the U.S. yield curve inverted. The two and ten, the two and ten yield curve inverted. That's right. right yeah, which uh, briefly, which it, it did happen briefly, but still it happened. Uh, and that, for those who are interested as to what that means, is that it means that the two year, uh, the two year bond yield. Uh, the interest rate on the two-year Treasury uh, securities in the US went above the interest rate on the 10-year securities, which is a very unusual thing to do, because usually the longer t- the longer the term on a on a bond or any kind of fixed interest security, the longer the term, the higher the interest rate, because you know you should get rewarded. You should uh, investors should get paid for mm. for locking mm. their money up for longer. Yeah, and that's the principle of it. But if if the shorter-term interest rate goes above the longer-term interest rate, that means that investors are very pessimistic because they think that longer-term, over the long-term, in the in the long future, interest rates will come down because the economy will fall. Yes. And uh, every US recession has been preceded by a yield curve inversion. Yes. And every yield curve inversion, bar one, has been followed by a US recession. And so... The fact that it happened on Tuesday night was a big deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so I did it on the news last night, and I think that uh, there were a lot of question marks above the viewers' heads thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Oh, you didn't get it wrong, though. That's no, I didn't get it wrong. It's just that it was kind of yeah. uh, it, it's, it's complicated and hard it, to... It, it is hard to concept. And, and it's interesting, like, this always gets lots of headlines... But I've noticed the headlines this time are maybe the yield curve's wrong. And there was some stuff out this morning from a US group saying the average, while while it has been a good predictor of recessions, stocks tend to go up by around 10% over the the 12 months following the yield curve inversion. So bad for economy, maybe not so bad for the share market. Yeah, but a US recession always causes a bear market, almost always. Yes. In the end. In the end. But you get a little gap of, uh, there's a little bit of sunshine before the clouds. Yes, that's right. So I was, I was talking to James Gerrish yesterday from um, Shore and Partners, who's yep. their portfolio manager, and he reckons basically the trend is your friend on oh, the market. Let the rally roll. Well, it's, you know, you just got to go with what, is, what you see in front of you. Just just play the, he was talking about, um, oh, I think it was some sort of football Maxim, <laughs> right, you, know, okay. you just play the play what's in front of you. Yeah, fair enough. 
Fair so, enough. Oh, that's right. It's a rugby league thing. Okay. <laughs> heads up. Heads up. Heads up. Eyes up, rugby league. Fair enough. Whatever. Fair enough. Anyway, let's do questions. All right. Uh, here's Peter, and he asks, concerning the BHP Petroleum demerger to Woodside, I wanted to better understand the franked in-specie dividend. So for every 5.5 BHP shares I have, I'll receive one Woodside share. Will that come with franking credits? Will the franking credits be based on the WPL share price at the day of issue? Good question. Go. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. No, the, the, the Woodside share is a, is a frank dividend. Yes, it it's is. It's been called a frank dividend, which yes. means that when you come to do your tax at the end of the year... It will have franking credits. It's, the, the value of it uh, has, is franked. So it's, it isn't... Um, yeah, so it's, it's a dividend... The, div- the share is a dividend yes. in species, so yes. it's, it's counted as a dividend, yep. but it's franked. So that means that um, when, when you come to do your tax, the, the value of that share uh, is, um, is diminished in your tax return by the franking amount. And, and your accountant will know what to do. Yes. That's all I'm saying. You're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting a share and you're getting the franking credits. Yeah. Because BHP's got lots of them. So it ends up being a cheap share. Yes. After you do your tax. Yes. And, and uh, with oil prices surging, you're probably even happier. Exactly. Will says, I'm an avid listener to the Money Cafe post-divorce. Well, so you're one of the kids that uh, we've, we've kept, in, we've kept uh, custody of. Well done, Will. Um, Alan, several weeks ago on the 10th of March, you were nursing a hangover from AFR's 70th birthday celebration. She ripped into treasurer Josh Frieden's speech is terrible and tore him a new one. Imagine my surprise when my when in my postbox, Mr. Frydenberg's in in Mr. Frydenberg's Kuyong electorate was a letter from the treasurer with the copy of the speech. I got it too. Did you receive the same mail? I did. There it was, and I had to. Well, I didn't actually read it again because I already. In all seriousness, says Will, do you give the independent challenger, Dr. Ryan in Kuyong, any chance of succeeding on climate change policy grounds? Can she win the guilty vote of those pretending they want climate action? So it will be a vote for Dr Ryan and all you wealthy voters in Kuyong may keep your three-tonne fuel-guzzling German four-wheel drives and jets <laughs> set lifestyle. Oh, you cynic, Will. Oh, Will. What a, will, what a you note. cynic. Jeez, <laughs> um, just coming down to the Short Straw Cafe today, it's a great sign-off. You know, the, the battle of the signs between uh, Josh and Monique Ryan is uh, incredible. It's like, I know. Uh, the, well, I, I, said, I, I spoke to Josh at that, at that um, uh, AFR, AFR dinner. Dinner, yeah. I said, I, said, I said to him, what, have you bought every, uh, every billboard spot in Kuyong? Have yeah. you? He said, yes, yeah. he has. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think so. I think Monique Ryan is reduced to uh, front yards. Yeah, but front she's fences. got a few. She's got a few, all oh, right. Wow. So uh, can she do it? I, I think Will, you're uh, slipping in a bit of editorial comment into into <laughs> your question uh, when you talk of those who pretend they want climate action. Uh, speaking as um, speaking as a Kuyong resident myself, I'm not pretending. I want climate action. Will Monique Ryan get up though? Uh, She's a good chance. I've had a chat to Monique. A couple of times I've met Monique and talked to her about what she needs to do. She needs 6,250 Kuyong voters, Coalition voters in Kuyong, to switch. Right. 
which is not that many. Oh, I reckon it's a lot. 6,250. I think she can... Oh, I think she can do it. I've told Josh she can do it. I said, you, have you, uh, I, you know. I, I'm, a, I'm a firm no, Will. She, Frydenberg will retain the seat. There you go. Right <laughs> up. Do you want to have a bet? Yeah. What should we bet? 100 bucks. Jeez. Uh, no? All right, 20. All right, 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John asks, if I or anyone listening to the podcast were lucky podcast were lucky enough to have a large windfall of tens of millions of dollars, you beauty, John, then what professional services should they engage in? How does PwC or KPMG's wealth advisor service differentiate from what wealth advice an investment bank like Morgan Stanley might give? And how do those firms differentiate from a boutique Australian firm like Pitcher Partners or a wealth management firm like Arnold Block Liebler? That's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, I would say they don't differ much at all. Except in their fees. Except in their fees. And I guess with an investment bank, um, maybe you're getting access to overseas stuff that might interest you. You know, if you if you wanted to get into European or American, some, some corner of the European or American market, perhaps... Uh, one of those investment banks might be able to provide you with better access. Yeah, look, it's possible that someone like Morgan Stanley at the margin has better people because they pay them more. That's possible. Mm. Um, uh, PwC and KPMG also tend to pay well and they charge a lot. Yep. Uh, so the whole kind of with, – with big firms like those and the big investment banks, the whole kind of financial equation increases – both what you pay and what they paid their their people yeah. is is more. Yes. So does that mean you get better people? Possibly not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, – I mean, I, I actually don't know what Picture Partners charges. I know that Unlock Block Liebler charges a fair bit because yeah. I've used them. I think a lot of the, the building blocks that they give you around estate planning and tax planning would be fairly similar. Because there's, you know, there's only so many ways you can do that in Australia. Yeah. But it, it's just at the margin. Uh, there might be differences depending on, and you might, your interests will lead you in a certain direction, I would have thought. Good problem to have, though. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes says, on a recent episode, you mentioned you've crunched the numbers as to which party, ALP versus the Coalition, taxes more over the last couple of decades. As my Google skills have failed me, where can I find this chart? Uh, well, I, you know, I should have looked it up. It was in it was in a uh, column I wrote for New Daily. Uh, you need to read all of Alan's columns for the New Daily, and you'll find it. Yes, yes. Perhaps we could uh, post the link on social media or something. We'll try to do that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it'll, uh, we'll, we'll post the link. I'll find it and give it to Greg, and then Greg will post it on the um, the Money Cafe section of the the transcript. Yeah. Cool. On the transcript. Yes. Good. Roberto, love you blokes to death, but I was disappointed with your lack of outrage at my question in the email below. Um, I might go to the question at the bottom. For those who have a low fixed, a low rate fixed or variable loan and a hex debt that is about to be indexed by inflation in June, do you think it's worthwhile contributing to the hex rather than the loan if inflation is going to pick up? Now, Roberto is very angry that... Um, it, it, because hex debts are linked to CPI, uh, he's a, a doctor, for example, a doctor with a 120k hex debt will get charged 4500 in CPI. If CPI goes up, it could be a lot more. 
Um, they claim Hex is interest-free, but it is worse than having a home loan at the moment. I don't think people understand the impact of this. The people need to know. The people need question to know. Mark, question mark, uh, ex- exclamation mark, four times. It's not, it's not even, even tax deductible, for Christ's sake. Yes. He's not pleased. He's not pleased. Uh, and I guess he's got a point. But what I would say is that, geez, CPI has worked in his favour for the last 10 years um, and kept the interest yes. bill on his his and other people's hex debts low. No, well, I'm with Roberto. I think CPI should only apply when, when inflation's really low. <laughs> and when inflation picks up, they should drop CPI. Yes. <laughs> I think that is uh, that would be my argument. That there are a bit of swings and roundabouts here. Um, and uh, you've been on the roundabout, and now you're going to get a little swing. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, uh, in all seriousness, it's important that we the rules remain through the cycle, right? You, you, you know, it's you, you've got to take the good with the bad. The RBA or is com- coming to bring inflation Apparently down not, James. anyway. Hamish says, could you explain uh, what the deal is with nominating beneficiaries on your super? Does this have any negative implications? Do you get taxed more when they're on there? And does this help avoid the death tax at all? Is there any way of avoiding the death tax on super? What, what death, death tax? tax? <laughs> there is no death tax. There is no de- death tax, Hamish. Um, as for the other stuff, uh, look, you're probably asking the wrong... Are you, do you know about this? Oh, I, I, I couldn't... I wouldn't think there's any negative, uh, n- negative implications. It, it's basically just saying who you want the super to go to. Yeah. So you can put it in your will. Yeah. You think. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to think through it. I couldn't think of I'll any transfer, negative I'll, I'll, I'll also put the question to our SMSF coach, yeah. Eureka Report, Olivia Long, who uh, is answering questions this very day. Oh, good. So we'll put it to her as well. She'll know. Yeah. Olivia knows all. She is the guru, the coach. James writes, thanks for the great podcast. My question is perhaps a little naive. What is the use in the RBA raising interest rates? My understanding is this basically saps demand out of the economy to prevent it from overheating and inflation getting out of control. However, if the inf- is the inflation we're experiencing today predominantly driven by demand? To me, it seems largely due to supply shocks. A cheeky follow-up, what can the RBA actually do to address this inflation beyond increasing interest rates? Or is that really it? Uh, um, well... Uh, it's the old saying: if if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yes. And so, <laughs> so all the the only th- so the Reserve Bank is the only body with the job of controlling inflation, and the only tool it has is uh, interest rates. Yes, uh, and, and quantitative easing. And quantitative easing. So yeah. So at the moment, um, James, they've been buying bonds to sort of try and control interest rates. They'll they'll they're stopping. They're reducing that. They're cutting back on that. And then the interest rate they'll raise to hopefully cool the economy. But he's absolutely right yeah, that the inflation is. is caused by supply problems, not demand. Although yes. there is a there has been an increase in demand. Yep. Uh, as a result of what we talked about before, all the savings from the pandemic. Uh, and also, you know, people are um, starting to shop again, having not shopped for a while. So demand is increasing, but it is the case that it's basically deflation is caused by supply problems and oil uh, energy prices going up. And the only thing the Reserve Bank can do is to reduce demand. Yeah, and, and hopefully that cools the economy, reduces demand and 
slowly the inflation rate comes yes. back under control. But it does mean, in my view at least, that um, uh, that it's a bit susceptible to mistake. To totally. a mistake because, you yeah. know, I mean, like, you're right, the interest rates won't do anything about the supply shocks. So, uh, so the more they interest, increase interest rates, the closer they get to causing a recession. You know, so they, so they could end up cause. So it's what happened in 1991 90, 90, um, when there was a current account problem, right? So the, the, the current account deficit was blowing out. There wasn't really a problem, any other problem. Mm. There was a bit of a wage blowout, but not much. Yeah. And, um, and so then interest rates went to 17%, you know, in, in uh, 1989 to deal with the current account problem. Yes. Which, which ended up causing a recession we had to have. Which, you know, crikey, who cares about the current account, honestly? Yeah, it's a bit different we, this time though, isn't it? Well, sure. We don't still, have that current we account. We don't need a recession to deal with uh, higher oil prices because of the war in Ukraine. I would have thought. Yes, but the danger is that, and we're seeing that we saw this this week. Inflation expectations are at their highest since 2012. So, do people become worried about higher inflation? Start demanding higher wages, and then you, inflation moves from this transitory thing, the oil prices, to a more structural thing, higher wage prices. That's what you're seeing in America, and that's know, what but, that's but, what we want to But everyone's been trying to get wages growth up for for years. <laughs> this is, I mean, you know, this is the thing. Central banks are like they're looking for the Goldilocks moment, aren't they? Not too not too hot, not too cold. I know, but but wages growth is still too low, so they want to get wages growth up, right? So yeah, that's fine. Get it up. You yeah, know, uh, the, the government says. The government says, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, we want wages to grow up, but we're going to argue against a, w- a wage increase in the uh, Fair Work Commission <laughs> and we're not going to put up wages of public servants. Yes. But it would be nice if wages went up. I mean, honestly. Yes. No, good point. But you're <laughs> right, James. It's not a naive question at all. It's a great economic debate. Yes. Uh, well, and that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening, everyone, to today's Money Cafe. It's been great, as always, with James Thompson, um, uh, the Shonaclear columnist, or one of the Shonda Clear columnists on the Financial Review. Stephen Mayne will join me next week. Send in your question to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll get to them. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Shonda Clear columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you next week. Thanks. Thanks.